Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. I'm the host, Scott. Today's episode is called, Did Moses Write That? Thanks for coming back to another episode. Today's discussion is an important one. As I said in in many previous episodes, it was my studies into ancient cultures and writings that made it harder for me to believe in the church. And I want to dig into some of these concepts today. And it makes a great foundation for further study of the Old Testament. Some of the comments that I received on my discussion of Asherah and a mother in heaven in ancient Israel referred me to read some of the scriptures proving that ancient Israel was a unified monotheistic religion. It is important to note that Judaism as we have it today did not exist in the first temple period. After the exile and during both the Persian rule and then later Greek rule, the Jewish religion became more standardized. A common misconception about all religions is that they are static. And when we look at pre-exilic Judaism and we impose post-exilic or modern Jewish beliefs on the ancient world, we look at it out of context. Because these people did not believe those same things. And that's, that's precisely what we want to look at today. Another listener was mortified that I suggested that Asherah was worshipped alongside Yahweh. Which is not something that scholars disagree with. They disagree with what the worship looked like and what the belief of Asherah was. But we have clear evidence that Asherah was worshipped alongside Yahweh in the Temple of Solomon in the first temple period. These passages that this other listener cited are clear examples of the priesthood and the leaders in the community talking out against the worship of Asherah alongside Yahweh. They would not speak out against it if it were not a thing that happened. Whether you think that's evil or vile, That's for you to decide, but it is a thing that was part of the ancient Israelite worship of Yahweh. They were polytheistic. This concept of polytheism in ancient Israel brings a very interesting question, because the argument is often made that the scriptures were very clear when they were handed to Moses, that the Ten Commandments and the direction given to Moses indicated that they were supposed to be they were supposed to worship the one true god and there are some very important questions that we need to ask when understanding a document and here are three questions that i will attempt to answer in this episode when was it written how much time passed between the time that it was written and the events described in the old testament 
And then what style of writing was used? As we look and examine the Old Testament and try to answer some of these questions, it becomes quickly clear that much of the Old Testament should not be read as literal history. Before I go too far into this, a distinction needs to be made. Simply because it should not be read as a literal history does not mean it does not have spiritual value. A few episodes back, I discussed the value of a belief in relation to the literal truth of a belief. A myth story can still hold value and teach excellent lessons about life, even though it is not literally true. Many biblical scholars maintain belief in God and maintain their worship of God while also recognizing that it is not a literal history. Now, with that preface out of the way, let's jump into the discussion. The way the Old Testament is presented within Mormonism is that it is a literal historical document about the church fathers, if you will, of the original family line of humanity in this world, starting with Adam through his sons and the subsequent prophets. The church encourages a literal reading of the Old Testament, and this this literal reading is further emphasized by corroborations of stories in the Old Testament in both the Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price. In the Pearl of Great Price, we have writings supposedly written by Moses and supposedly written by Abraham. If you do not believe that the Bible is a literal historical record, some of these documents that Joseph Smith translated or that Joseph Smith produced, whether you believe that's a, a literal translation or a, an inspired translation, or you believe that he wrote it himself, regardless, Joseph Smith produced these documents. And if you do not have a literal reading and a literal interpretation of the Old Testament, then these documents that Joseph Smith produced are very problematic. Now, for the Jews, the first five books are referred to as the Torah. And in, for Christians, it's referred to as the Pentateuch. And what that is, is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Traditional readings of these five books, they were literal histories written by the hand of Moses. There are many, many problems with this traditional reading. And scholarship today around the Old Testament has developed in a way where they no longer view Moses as the literal author. So when did this biblical criticism start? Well, there's a, there's a lot of different people that have given their opinions on this subject. One of the earliest ones that I want to talk about is Thomas Hobbes. Now, Hobbes was born in 1588 in Westport, Wilshire. He's a philosopher of the uh, 17th century. Hobbes is, is probably best known for his book called Leviathan. He's talking about society and how people function within a society. But in that book, he actually gives some interesting insight on the Old Testament. In chapter 33, he argues that the Pentateuch was probably not written by Moses or written during Moses's life. 
he cites a few scriptures to back his argument. Specifically, Deuteronomy 34, 6, where the scripture says, No man knoweth of his sepulcher to this day. And they're talking about Moses's sepulcher. And then the question that Hobbes presents is, if Moses wrote this, how would he know that no one knows where he was buried? And then what day is this referring to when it says to this day? One generation later, two, three, four, five. Scriptures such as this make it problematic to be written by the hand of Moses. There were a number of other ones that he discussed in this this chapter. As I said, it was chapter 33 of his book, Leviathan. It's interesting to note that, that some of the best thinkers that were themselves Christians read the Bible, they were very studious of it, and they noticed a lot of these contradictions. When talking about biblical criticism, one of the most influential scholars is a man named Julius Wellhausen. He was born in 1844, and he died in uh, 1918. He was a German biblical scholar. The contribution he made to the biblical scholarship was the creation of what is now referred to as the documentary hypothesis. And I'll get into that a little bit. Wellhausen published a, a treatise on this called Prolegomena to the History of Israel. The argument that he made was that the Bible is an important document for historians to study about ancient Israel, but that it should not be taken literally. And then he went on to make an argument on how it should be read and how some of these interesting contradictions in the Pentateuch could be explained. And I'll get to that in just a minute. He was the professor ordinarius of theology at the University of Greeswald. He was teaching people to become pastors and to become religious leaders. Here's a quote from his letter of resignation when he decided he could no longer fulfill this capacity. He said, I became a theologian because the scientific treatment of the Bible interested me. Only gradually did I come to understand that a professor of theology also has the practical task of preparing the students for service in the Protestant church, and that I am not adequate to this practical task, but that instead, despite all caution on my own part, I make my hearers unfit for their office. Since then, my theological professorship has been weighing heavily on my conscience. The arguments that he made and the explanation that he gave about this, the origin of the Old Testament, and specifically the Pentateuch, was making people doubt their beliefs because he discouraged people from reading it as a literal history and instead encouraged them to try and understand it in its context and understand exactly what's happening within the Bible. Now, linguistic experts almost universally agree that the language in the Pentateuch could not have been written by a single author. These stories that are told about in the Pentateuch were originally oral traditions, passed down generation to generation, retold over the years. Now, there's some interesting things that happen when a story is an oral tradition. When each person goes and retells the story, the story changes a little bit. It shifts a little bit. And over time, the details, the details change. And, the, and if enough time passes, these oral traditions can even 
shift into two completely different, different versions of the same story. And this is something that happens almost 30 different times in the Pentateuch, where the same story is told twice with different details. In Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 2-3, we have one creation story. And then immediately following in Genesis 2-4 through 25, we have a second creation story. These two stories do not tell the same creation. The order of events is different, and there are some very interesting word choice changes from one story to the next. This happens about 30 times in the Pentateuch, where you have one story told, then it's retold in a very distinct way. But I'm going to read a list of a number of them, just to kind of give you an example of some of the things that are are retold. Now, some of these aren't just duads. Some of them are triplets, where the same story is told three times. You have, as I said, the creation. You also have the genealogy of Adam. You have that told twice. You have God declaring that man is to invoke his name. You have that told three times. You have two flood narratives. Abraham and Lot are separated. That one's told twice. The Abrahamic covenant is told two times. Hagar and Ishmael is told, two, is told three times. The prophecy of Isaac's birth is told twice. The naming of Beersheba is told twice. Jacob Esau and the departure to the east is told twice. Jacob at Bethel is told twice. Joseph being sold into Egypt is told twice. And those ones are just from the book of Genesis. We could keep, I'm going to keep going because I think this is fascinating. In Exodus, these ones are both from Exodus and Numbers. Uh, some, of these, some of these doublets are separated uh, by significant um, portions of the text. So it's not like in Genesis 1, the creation, and then you have Genesis 2, the second creation story. Some of these stories are, are separated by long stretches of text. The story of, of Moses, Pharaoh, and the ten plagues is told twice. The Passover story is told twice. The crossing of the Red Sea is told twice. Manna in the wilderness is told twice. Water from the rock at Meribah is told twice. The Ten Commandments are told three times in Exodus. Exodus 20, 1 through 17. Exodus 34, 10 through 28. And then the third time in Deuteronomy 5, 6 through 18. Now, there are some very interesting differences in the commandments in these, perhaps a subject for another episode. I could keep going. There's the, the list is, is really long. There's a lot of these duads and sometimes triads in the Old Testament. Today, almost every scholar in Pentateuch studies agrees that the Old Testament was written by multiple sources and was not written by the hand of Moses. Now, there are a couple of there are a couple of schools of thought on how the Old Testament was written or compiled. I want to cover two of these briefly in this episode. I'm going to talk about the documentary hypothesis and the supplementary hypothesis. Now, the doc documentary hypothesis was introduced by Wellhausen, as I, as I mentioned. His, his take on it is a little bit outdated because we have some better archaeology and better understanding of the ancient Near East to better put the Pentateuch or the Torah in its time and place. The documentary hypothesis and the supplementary hypothesis break up sections of the Pentateuch. They break them up into four original sources and then a fifth source that's referred to as the R source. And I'll, I'll explain the first four and then I'll explain what happened with the R source. 
because both the documentary hypothesis and the supplementary hypothesis um, do the same similar thing. So the four different sources are the Yahwist, Eloist, Deuteronomist, and Priestly sources. The Yahwist source and the Eloist source. The major distinction between these two sources when the sacred name of Yahweh is first presented. In the Yahwist source, the, the name of their deity is known from the beginning. In the Eloist source, the name of God is not revealed until Moses sees him on Mount Sinai. And so that's, that's the distinction between the Yahwist and the Eloist source. The third source is the priestly source. This source was more concerned with priestly matters. They're attributed mostly to the, um, the book Leviticus and then many other stories as well. And then the, the last of the four original sources is the Deuteronomist. And it's called the Deuteronomist source because, because the, the reading of the Pentateuch, it's clear that um, Deuteronomy was its own book. And I'll, I'll go into it a little bit more in a sec here. But then the fifth source that I mentioned is the redactor or compiler. It's often uh, referred to as the R source. Basically, this was someone who much later took both the Yahwist, Eloist, Deuteronomist, and priestly sources and compiled them into one document and occasionally wrote um, little snippets and little verses here and there to offer some explanation. So we have these five sources in the Pentateuch. We have the Yahwist, Eloist, Deuteronomist, and priestly sources, and then a redactor who compiled all of these documents. The documentary hypothesis places the Yahwist and Eloist sources as being written first. I'm going to brief, briefly put in some dates for these, these periods of time. You have the dual monarchies from around 850 to 722 BCE. It ends at 722 because that's when the Assyrians conquered the Israelites. And then from that point on, you have the Judah period, where it's a single monarchy, and it's Judah that's the only nation left. And that goes from about 722 to right around 600 BCE, when the Babylonians went and conquered. That whole time period is typically referred to as the first temple period or the pre-exile period. Pre-exilic is, is referring to anything before the exile. And then post-exilic is about 100 years later, right around 500 BCE, when the Persians conquered the Assyrians and the Babylonians and freed the Israelites and the Jews to go back home and then rebuilt their temple. The Persian period ended right around 330 BCE, when Alexander the Great conquered the known world. And that is the, after that is the, the Greek influence or the Greek period. Now, everything that we have in the Old Testament was written somewhere along that time frame. And so the documentary hypothesis posits that the, both the Yahwist and the Eloist sources were written in the pre-exile, specifically in the dual monarchies period. And it puts them as the first things that were written. Next, it would place the Deuteronomist right around the, the time of King Josiah. The priestly source is often dated to the time of the prophet Ezra in the 5th century BCE. And then the redactor is also put right around that same time frame in the Persian period. So it would be right around 500 BCE. 
So the priestly would be the either the sixth or the fifth century BCE, and the redactor in that same time frame, either the sixth or the fifth century BCE. So that's the general datings of those. But there are some problems with that. These are referred to as hypotheses because so we don't really have a good solid answer for a lot of these questions. That's why scholars are debating them. It's not like we can go back in time. Scholars typically debate a lot of the details about this. So when studying ancient history, especially on a, on a, a subject that doesn't have a firm answer, it's good to look at this stuff as, as the best interpretation according to the facts that we have today. Interestingly, the documentary hypothesis does have some problems, and they're not the problems that a biblical literalist would present. One of the major problems was something that, that we talked about in a previous episode. In the previous episode, where I talked about Asherah as the divine consort of Yahweh, it presents an interesting problem because the pre-exilic Israelites According to the archaeological record, worship of other gods was commonplace. It is clear in that time in that time period, especially in the time of King Josiah, that the ancient Israelites were shifting their theology away from polytheism towards monotheism. We have lots of archaeological evidence of polytheistic beliefs in ancient Israel. But at the time of King Josiah and when some of these earliest books were written, we have a shift in their theology where Yahweh is subsuming some of the, some of the traits of the other deities in the pantheon and these other deities are getting pushed aside and we have anti-polytheistic rhetoric in the Old Testament because they are pushing out the old and establishing a new belief system. Biblical monotheism is a fascinating subject because in ancient Israel, they were not strict monotheists. If you date the Yahwist and the Eloist sources as the earliest sources, according to the archaeological evidence, they were not strict monotheists. But in those writings, they apparently were more monotheistic than polytheistic. So dating the Yahwist and the Eloist sources as before the Deuteronomy source becomes a little bit problematic, and that leads us into the supplementary hypothesis. The supplementary hypothesis is interesting. It basically says most of what the documentary hypothesis says is right, except for some of the datings of these books. And so the, the big change in the supplementary hypothesis is that they say that D, the Deuteronomist, was the first source that was written. Most scholars agree that there are major stylistic similarities between a number of books, and the implication is that whoever wrote the book of Deuteronomy also wrote the book of Jeremiah, the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, the book of Samuel, and the book of Kings. Most agree that it's, it, these are like a school of thought. It wouldn't be one person that, that sat down and wrote it. Some have posited that Jeremiah was the the leader of this school of thought and that his followers were those that that wrote these other books but the the supplementary hypothesis says that Deuteronomy was the first one written along with these other books that I mentioned Jeremiah Joshua Judges Samuel and Kings now it's they call it first and second kings because it didn't fit on one scroll 
it was, it was a long book. So Kings, first Kings, second Kings is what I'm referring to there. Now, in the supplementary hypothesis, they say that so they say that D was written first, and then later J and E were supplementary material added in to D during the exile. And the supplementary hypothesis says that the P source was written during the second temple period. So that would be after the Persians helped the Jews rebuild their temple. And then a redactor redacted all of these things in that same Persian time period and compiled them all together. It's, it's a, a small distinction between the two, between the documentary hypothesis and the supplementary hypothesis, but it's fascinating. Now, before I dig into a little bit of these implications, I want to quickly recap. The entirety of the Torah or Pentateuch is generally understood to have been written from the 8th century BCE down to the 5th or 6th century BCE. So these first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah or the Pentateuch, were written between the 8th century BCE and the 5th or 6th century BCE. One of the questions I asked at the outset of this was how much time had passed between the writing of the records and the stories being shared and told about. To make a concession, let's just say that Adam lived on the earth and dated, according to many biblical literalists, would be about 4000 BCE. If we say that Adam lived at 4000 BCE, the first mention we have of him is nearly 3000 years later. The same goes for many of these early stories in the book of Genesis. These stories are thousands of years old. Let's suppose that he was a real person. Let's suppose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of these people, let's suppose that they were all real and the stories told about them were passed down from generation to generation over the space of 3,000 years. That distance in time between when the books were written and when the events would have happened make it very problematic if you're going to read it literally. That doesn't mean it doesn't hold spiritual value. It doesn't mean that these stories don't teach lessons. It doesn't mean that they aren't helpful and good. It just means they are legends and myths about the ancient ancestors of the Israelites. When we look at a book of scripture and ignore the archaeological evidence surrounding it, we take it out of context. When we look at the Old Testament and recognize that ancient Israelites were polytheistic and come from a polytheistic background, when we place them in the 8th to 5th century BCE, we see that they are responding to the polytheism of their ancestors and speaking out against it. Much of their theology was solidified during and after the exile, when we have these scriptures being written and formalized. Making a blanket statement that the ancient Israelites were not polytheistic ignores the evidence. The last point I will make on this particular subject about polytheism, you have this story of Elijah versus the, versus the priests of Baal in 1 Kings 17. Uh, through 1 Kings 19, you have this story being told. The way it's presented is not that Baal doesn't exist, 
not that he isn't a god. They present it as Yahweh being a mightier god than Baal. It's not, there are no other gods besides me. The way it's written in the scriptures is, you should not worship any other gods besides me. That's the way it's presented. It's presented that they exist, but that Yahweh is superior to all of them. But again, this was written between the 8th and 5th centuries BCE, where they are shifting their theology from polytheism to monotheism. When we ignore the archaeological evidence, we take the scriptures out of context and we misunderstand what's happening in them. This has some major implications on belief. Oftentimes in the Mormon church, these stories are presented as literal histories, but when we read them in the correlated material, the church only chooses one duads or one of these triads, and they only teach the one story that most aligns with the theology. So when people are introduced to these, these duads and triads, they're confused because they have never heard that these stories are told multiple times. There are some other problems that I didn't go into. There are a number of anachronisms as well. Part of this problem is that it was an oral tradition. It was told over and over through generations. And they didn't keep records like we do today. I mentioned in, the previous, in a previous episode, the way that we write history today is heavily influenced by a Greek philosopher named Herodotus. And what I mean specifically by that is the contribution that Herodotus made and his influence that he had on writing and the writing of history that we have today is that he did a systematic investigation of historical events. And he specifically was investigating the Greco-Persian Wars before this period, before Herodotus and before he made this contribution to the way we look at history. Histories were not written with any sort of investigation into the events. They were not written by asking around and investigating and finding sources to corroborate any of the stories. When the Old Testament was written, it was written based on these oral traditions. They could not go around and ask to make sure that they got the events right. They could not go around and ask to make sure that their stories were historically accurate. That isn't to say they didn't have good intentions or that they didn't think that these stories were history. They may have, but the way we look at history today, we examine it and we try and understand it based on these same methods that Herodotus introduced through investigation, through corroborating the history with the archaeological evidence. And that's why when we look at the Old Testament and we recognize that there are real problems with, the, with a literal dating, we have to come up with a better interpretation of how it was written, of why it was written, and who it was written for. And that's what leads us into this biblical criticism. Now, there are, there are other theories on who wrote the Bible and what time period it was written in. But these two that I presented are perhaps the two most popular one. I don't want to give the impression that every scholar agrees on every detail. That's, that's not the case. But 
scholars generally agree on time periods of when these books were written. They generally agree on some of the distinctions between like a first and second version. There oftentimes was a second writer that would would have been a follower of the first one, sometimes even generations later. For example, there's believed to be a Deuteronomist, an, an original Deuteronomist, and a second Deuteronomist. And the second one wrote his words, added some things, and put them into the book of Deuteronomy, but they were not written by the first one. We've often heard the same thing about Isaiah, where there's a first and second Isaiah. Some people believe a third Isaiah, and they were written at, at dramatically different time periods. Same things happened in Mark, where earliest sources that we have of the book of Mark are shorter than the version that we have in our New Testament. I know I went into the history of some of these things a little bit more in depth than I have in some previous episodes. I hope that you were able to follow it. If not, I do recommend there's a there's a guy on YouTube named Matt Baker. He has a channel called Useful Charts, and he has some excellent videos talking about this very same subject. He even goes into another version of understanding the dating of the Bible that I didn't go into today. There's lots of different ideas that people have out there. When I was a believing member of the Mormon Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I came across this information, and I studied it and read it, and it made better sense than a traditional reading of the Old Testament. It forced me into a position where I could no longer read it as a literal history. And this was the first step of me deconstructing my belief in the Mormon Church. Now, there are a lot of different things that people can interpret this, a lot of ways that you can deconstruct or even reconstruct belief. I don't want to say that a deconstruction of of the literal history of the Old Testament will always destroy faith. It doesn't have to. When you read the Old Testament, when you read any document, it is important to read it in its context with the best understanding that we have of it. Even after I stopped believing it was a literal literal history, I continued to read it. And interestingly, I gained more insight from it, looking at it as a mythology, than I ever did reading it as a history. Let me explain briefly. Stories such as Jonah and the whale, so outlandish that it's ridiculous I ever thought it was true and so clearly a rhetorical device. It's, it's crazy that I never saw it. Regardless, I can't, I can't beat myself up too much for having read it uh, as literal because that was the worldview I was handed. Reading the story of Jonah and not believing that it was literal, instead, I was able to read it as a story that is very clearly trying to teach a message. Specifically in this one, the story is fascinating. Because here you have the prophet Jonah rejecting his call to serve a mission. And his logic for it is because he hates the Assyrians. But he knows that God is powerful enough to change the Assyrians' minds and make them good. And Jonah doesn't want that because he hates them and he wants to still hate them. If the Assyrians, and specifically the Assyrian king, converts to Judaism, then Jonah won't be able to hate them anymore. And when I, when I read the story 
instead of looking at it as a parable for Jesus Christ, which it wasn't, and I read it in the context of what the meaning of what the original author intended, I saw it for a story about inclusion, a story about loving your enemies. And my whole view of that story completely changed, and it is one of my favorite in the Old Testament. Regardless of my position on God, now I still read them as myth stories, and I interpret them as best I can, because I, I don't speak Hebrew and I don't read the language, and so a lot of my interpretations are relying on, on other scholars. To quote Newton, I stand on the shoulders of giants. I, without many of the books that I've read, many of the scholars that I've chatted with, I wouldn't have a lot of these understandings that I do have. As I said a minute ago, I don't present this as a way to destroy faith for anyone that's a believing member of the church. You can still believe in God, but understand that the Old Testament was not a literal history. Now, it does become a bit problematic because many of these stories are treated as literal in the Book of Mormon and by the Prophet Joseph Smith. And for me, that was the complication that led to some of the doubts that I was never able to reconcile. When I read it on its own and believed in God, apart from the Mormon church, I was able to hold the belief while disbelieving in the literal history. There is a lot of rhetoric in the Mormon church about a literal reading of the Old Testament. And for me, I could not hold on to the dissonance for very long. We have in Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph Smith talking about the 6,000-year-old earth. We have quotes from many prophets talking about literal Adam and Eve, literal Abraham, literal Moses, when these figures are mythological and legendary. And the reason they are mythological and legendary is because we have no other corroborating evidence for them outside of the Old Testament. And the very late writing of the Old Testament makes them suspect when read as a literal document. That doesn't mean that Moses didn't exist. That doesn't mean that Abraham or even Adam didn't exist. It just means that we cannot read these stories as literal histories. So for me, when I would listen to the modern prophets and apostles talk about these characters in a literal way, it made belief much harder for me to maintain. I will say on the flip side that a believer might hear this same information and say that a modern day prophet talking to God and hearing stories from God about these legendary and mythological characters is evidence that they existed and is evidence that these stories are accurate. And if that's something that a person wants to believe, that is their decision. I don't want to present these ideas in an effort to say everyone has to agree with me. I'm trying to present the evidence so that people from all sides of the belief spectrum can address the real problems and reconcile them in their own belief. Biblical criticism and the ancient Near East are some of my biggest passions. I love reading about this stuff. So I, I plan on doing a lot more podcasts on this subject down the road, intermingling it with a bit of 
other ruminations on other subjects as morality and and I'm planning down the road to do a couple of episodes about the gospel topics essays. I'm going to bring on a friend of mine to discuss this. I haven't decided if I want to record them all and then release them all at the same time or just to do them as as his and my schedule line up, but they are coming down the road. If you enjoy my podcast, please like and subscribe. You can find me on Facebook as well. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate the comments that I have received. I'm planning on doing an episode talking about some of the comments, addressing some of the the criticisms that I've received, and also um, recognizing some of the excellent input that other listeners have said. In some of my posts on Facebook, I've had listeners make excellent points about the subjects that I've been talking about, and I encourage this discussion. I will never say that I know everything. I will never say that I have learned it all, because I haven't. I know there is so much that I don't know. The problem is, I don't know what I don't know. And on that note, I hope you all have an excellent day.